doing what we call a clinical grind, which is actually the more the medicine. But the topic I chose for us today, and these awesome physicians agreed to help me out with, is SCAPE, which is the sympathetic crashing acute pulmonary edema. And if what you heard in your head was flash pulmonary edema, that's what we're talking about. But I work in a place where when I say that now, residents look at me like, you're old. And so I try and say skate, but occasionally I slip up and say, oh, you're in flash pulmonary edema. The new term we're going with is tenured. Ten you're, oh, that's you're right. You're, this you're a tenured emergency medicine I'm provider. Tenured not experienced any longer. Beyond experienced. Oh, beyond, beyond experienced. Yeah. yeah, it's older, experienced, tenured. Tenured, yeah. yeah. It's a spectrum. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I think emeritus is like on their next or something. It's like terrible. Uh, yeah, retired. Retired. I don't know. So anyway, so I'm going to give you a clinical scenario and, and jump right in with your thoughts. And I'll give you the latest one that I had of this. So I was sitting actually at the desk and we we're talking about hypothermia patients. And the EMS crew had called in with a lady not breathing so well history of CHF, swollen extremities, satting well, little tachycardic at 102. Sounded like a sick but not dying patient, and it was like an eight-minute ETA. And I look up as they wheel by the desk, and I said, yep, they're sick. We need to get over there. And uh, the intern looks at me and is like, well, how do you know? So you all know how you know, but I knew. But we get to the room and it's already very different than the radio report. Now our heart rate's like 130. And you know, when you, when you go to move her from the stretcher, even though you've done nothing to sit her back, she's immediately screaming, don't sit me back, I'll die. And you get over to the bed and she is sitting up and has her hands on her knees and is just breathing to beat the band. So hopefully you all have the clinical picture in your head, a painting in your head. How do you like to approach these patients and what's your approach to this clinical grind? Scream and run isn't an option? It, always an option. Oh, okay. Yeah, I, I like to leave everything on the table. <laughs> so. No, I think that these are, there's two parts of the story that really stick out to me. So yes, you're dealing with a really sick patient and a very critical resuscitation. And interestingly enough, when dealing with scape, it's those decisions you make in those first five to 10 minutes mm -hmm. that absolutely, in my opinion, predict the entire course of the clinical case. But what I find really interesting about this too is the chance to illustrate to your learner in this situation how to very rapidly pivot in your brain what exactly we're going to be doing in terms of the workup and the intervention. You now are being presented with a patient who is critically ill as opposed to what you were expecting, which is stably ill. Mm -hmm. And now all of a sudden we need to start making decisions really, really quickly. So. In my opinion, very first thing, step that needs to be done, airway support, right? I'm starting this patient on positive pressure ventilation. I'm yelling for anybody to grab sublingual nitro from anywhere where you can possibly get it because I know that the key to turning this patient around is beginning to shift some of that fluid dynamic. Okay. We've got pivoting and shifting going on. Pivoting and shifting. Along with running away. <laughs> so three good verbs. Like there. A, I like a dance move, right? Dance move, yes. <laughs> so one of the things that's very important to delineate one is, we obviously know this patient is in skate, but you know, there have been many times where I've seen hypertensive patients who've come in tachycardic and respiratory distress and missing like an asthma flare, remembering that there's a lot of things that look 
very similar to skate, but can oftentimes present as something else. So I've made a habit now. One of the things that you all a lot of times find with these patients in respiratory distress is you listen with your stethoscope. And with all of the beeping going on, because the oxygen, the tachycardia is making the monitor go off, the oxygen saturation is making the monitor go off, and you're not able to really hear good breath sounds. Are you hearing crackles? Are you hearing wheezing? What are you hearing exactly? And so your ultrasound can be helpful in that regard, and I will oftentimes take that with me. And a lot of patients who come in with SCAPE, their heart isn't sitting there going, I'm just here doing the CHF thing. It's a very hyperdynamic heart. There's obviously B lines present. And in that circumstance, a lot of times, again, positive pressure is gonna be your friend. This is a patient who probably, as soon as I heard the report, depending on how, you know, the report that you sounded out may not get respiratory ready in the room, but as soon as they're rolling by, I'm not saying, I oh, wish should go evaluate the patient. It's respiratory is in the room, you should beat me there. <laughs> Bring your CPAP machine with you because we're going to be using this. And then sublingual nitro versus even getting the nitro drip ready to go, ready to start as soon as you walk into the room. Yeah. See, you're nice. You were assuming you were going to manage the patient. My thing is I'm going to, I'm going to go with the resident if they don't call respiratory. I'm going to be like, how long are you going back? I'm boo-boo. <laughs> You want to be there five minutes, 10 minutes, it's all good to me. It's all positive pressure. Doesn't have to have a machine. You can be the machine. No, no George, I'm a little confused because this morning you were talking about whenever the ultrasound goes on the patient, you run the other direction. And now you just talked about applying the ultrasound to this patient. Yes. Because this other tool that I'm not sure that I take out of my pocket very often is not going to work, the stethoscope. I mean, it's a clinical diagnosis initially. And I think one of the tricks to these really sick patients is that we have to switch our mind. The hypertensive heart failure patient Oftentimes, we actually think of as the easiest of the heart failure patients. We have all this room to work. We can use our nitroglycerin with a very high ceiling because you have a lot of blood pressure to work with as opposed to the normotensive heart failure patient where you have much less room for air mm -hmm. if you over-titrate, overshoot. But the patient in SCAPE, you don't have as much room for air. And it's not because of the initial management, which is non-invasive positive pressure you know, ventilations and nitroglycerin because we have to act with some other medications and some other interventions quickly also, mm -hmm. right? And, and that's, it's a mindset and getting yourself in that mindset, let alone everyone else in the room, whether you have learners or not, but you're nursing your respiratory therapy, to realize that this isn't just hypertensive heart failure, hypertensive fluid overload, that this is the subset of it where they are the sickest and they tank the fastest. Yep, so that's super huge. One of my favorite things when I see a skate patient is to ask the medical student or the intern, what does this person need right now? What's the answer that comes out of their mouth? Lasix. They need Lasix. Dr. Yeah. Willis, this person needs a million milligrams of furosemide <laughs> IV right Snap. now. They should be peeing all over the walls. There's so much Lasix that's necessary in this person. And it's a very strong teaching point that I love making and say, Lasix is not gonna do nothing for this patient. Yeah. And they don't understand the physiology for why. You know, I, I was taught as a paramedic that the time to give Lasix is 10 minutes before you arrive in the emergency department. And then as a resident, I was trained that the time to give Lasix is 10 minutes prior to the patient going upstairs. Yeah. Right, because <laughs> we'll that, that's when Lasix works the best so that the next person has to deal with the pee everywhere. Yep. <laughs> well, and I love the fact that you say, those, we've all been saying the exact same thing, right? Those first few minutes are critical. There's, there's a lot of stuff that we do in emergency medicine with very, very sick patients where you actually have a little bit more time than maybe is initially perceived from the outside, right? I've got 20 minutes, I've got 30 minutes, 
there is a very, very finite list of things that we need to do emergently right away for specific conditions in order to actually, for realsies, save a life, right? So immediately giving epi for anaphylaxis, right? And the, I would make the argument that starting nitro and positive pressure ventilation for SCAPE is a true emergent life-saving intervention that needs to happen right away and so it is imperative that we recognize this quickly and intervene very quickly as well. Yeah, I, I love that. Just, George, just to pick on you for just a second, I wanna, I wanna make sure you were fully invested in the story. This was a female patient and to have her ping on the wall like this <laughs> is, was, you broke, you broke the fourth wall. Um, so I just, you know, in general, just so we're all gonna stick with a female patient, but it's okay. I can understand, I can understand where, where this would come from. So, but just for reality purposes, since this is clearly a real patient that I've virtually created in front of us. So no, it, those are all great points. So I originally treated a lot of these patients with nasotracheal intubation because I practiced medicine, you know, before the BiPAP was available a lot. And I worked as a paramedic and that was our go-to. And, and then, you know, to see that transition of BiPAP and CPAP work its way into um, the world of treatment. The goal ultimately, I think, with these patients is to, is to offload Right, and to keep them from having to go on the ventilator is really why this is such a, a time-sensitive thing. So my question for you is, this particular patient, so we followed your sage advice and got respiratory to bedside soon, and fortunately it was a day where we had a BiPAP machine available. We weren't using it on the other 30 sick people, so it probably wasn't the day after Thanksgiving. And so we had a BiPAP machine available, and we go to put it on the patient, and she starts swatting. Mm. Please don't put that on me. Oh, please, no, have mercy. And that is all interspersed with gurgling, foaming, respirations. What do you just are like, cool, cool, time to tube? Or are you a nicer, gentler, kinder? And what kind of tricks do you have that, that maybe our audience could use if they have not encountered that or encounter it, but just want to have some extra tools in their bag? The kindest and the gentlest. The kindest, while running away. While running away. While running away, yeah. I run away very gently. So I like to play around with the positive pressure ventilation for a little bit before I'm willing to give it up and say, okay, it's time to move on. And so, and when I say play around, I mean, so did RT just shove that mask on the patient's face? It's not fitting well. They've got jet engine blaring in their face as everybody's freaking out that, oh, we need to get this peep up really high, really fast in order to help out. What actually, is, what is the reason why the patient is so uncomfortable? And so those are kind of my three things that I'll walk through. So is the mask fitting well? Is there maybe a different mask that we can use? We oftentimes forget the fact that RT really does have access to a lot of different shaped face masks and so that they can be more or less tolerated by different people. What is my starting peep? Can I knock that down quite a bit? Gently hold the mask on the patient's face, kind of work them up to my treatment level that I actually need to be at. And thirdly, I'm just gonna have a quick conversation with the patient. I know that you're really freaking out right now. You're drowning in your own lungs. I get it. I really need you to work with the mask. And many times I will kind of draw on the patient's own experience a little bit too. So has this ever happened to you before? Oh yes, do you remember how much better you felt with this last time? Yes, this is gonna suck for a few minutes, but come on, let, work with me here, let's try to get there. 
And one of the things that I think is probably the most important thing with anybody who's going on, if, I don't know how many of you guys have tried non-invasive positive pressure ventilation. It is not comfortable. And I think it's one of the lectures that I do with my residents is I'll actually make everybody come down and put the non-invasive mask on and see what it feels like to have positive pressure blown into your lungs while you're trying to expire, not die, just expire. <laughs> All you have to do is hop on, wasn't it, I-14 going 75 miles an hour and stick your head out the window and try to exhale. Right. right the breathing in is okay, but the exhaling part is, is yeah, it's, yeah, it's essentially, now that's CPAP, not BiPAP, but BiPAP for these patients doesn't feel a whole lot different. Correct. So the coaching is really important and found to be probably the most helpful thing to do is to tell them, look, I'm going to breathe with you. Yes, I don't have the face mask on, but I want you to breathe when I breathe. And they take a deep breath in and then they breathe out. And as you do it more with them, they actually tend to slow their breathing down, start to feel the actual machine starting to work for them with this disease process and make them feel significantly improved. And then after a couple of minutes, they're usually able to do it on their own. And then you can go off and see other patients. I'm kidding, obviously. This is not a patient who you're going to be leaving the bedside. You're going to be at the bedside, watching them, making sure that they're improving, making sure that your interventions are working, which is one of the most satisfying things to do with mm -hmm. these patients, is this is one of the few patient populations that you'll see that they will probably get better in the emergency department, which is a little bit of stroking, as Ali would say, stroking your wellness, yeah. <laughs> giving you some positive reinforcement. Now, at the same time you two are doing that, I'm often thinking about a little liquid courage for the patient also, because we need to bring them down a notch. But mm -hmm. the problem in these situations, and I think we, we've all created the narrative in our head, that, I mean, my go-to medication when I'm putting somebody on BiPAP who doesn't tolerate it very well, particularly if I'm thinking about the asthmatic and the COPD, or maybe even the normal or hypotensive heart failure patient is ketamine. But ketamine is not the right medication for this patient, right? Because what we need to do is break that sympathetic cycle. Mm -hmm. And I don't like benzos in this situation, period. Not saying that they're wrong and other people might be more comfortable with them, but I don't like taking somebody who is at the verge of not having any energy left to breathe and sedate them with a benzodiazepine that we know has significant respiratory depression. So now I'm left with really two options in my head, right? Fentanyl, which is a great option. And then the, the new kid on the block that in the last lecture, Medications of the Mind was not in a red box, is olanzapine. And I like that medication also for, for different but similar reasons. But that go-to small aliquot ketamine is, is off the table completely. Yeah, ketamine will get a shoe thrown at you. I've had that experience. It was trying to, to help with BiPAP. Ketamine was kind of an option. Um, this was earlier in, in residency training for me. And with my program director at my side, we gave a dissociative dose of ketamine to get the mask on. And she promptly pulled off her Air Jordan and hurled it at our heads oh, wow. <laughs> and apologized later. And she, she lived and she did fine. But there was a better, better decision-making could have been. And at the had. same time, you're watching that heart rate go up and that blood pressure go up also. No, no, I was ducking. I didn't see what well, was happening. I was actually going to ask, did the shoe hit you or your program? Director? Oh, no, it went between us. He had a, there was a height <laughs> oh. difference. Yeah, but it was, it was good. But, but yeah, and, and I, I very much agree, and I like the fact that with the narcotic analgesia, we have a reversal agent. So, you know, if we do go too far with that. And, and I'm really excited by the, the growing body of research that is also looking at other treatments than just BiPAP, like high-flow nasal cannula. Mm -hmm. and, and, you know, depending on where you're at, whether you're in a pre-hospital environment or an emergency department or an emergency department, you know, maybe you have some of them that are boarding patients and you've got a critical care department in your emergency department. You know, if you have access to those tools, 
those can certainly be great. And they, they bypass this whole area of discussion because most patients find them very, very comfortable, which is, I think, the biggest you know, benefit to those. Speaking of medications, have any of you guys ever experimented with dexmedetomidine, Presidex? No, not personally. I well, mean, although I, I'd, I'd be okay. Yeah. I'm more interested in trying ketamine at some point in my life. Have you experimented <laughs> with any of the others? Yeah. But yeah. we just recently, about maybe a year ago or so, started getting this more easily accessible in our department. Mm -hmm. And that has, by and large, become my go-to medication when I have a patient who needs just a little bit of central soothing in order to tolerate a procedure of any kind. So how are you using it? Because I've tried it a few times. We have ED pharmacists available, but they never seem to be available when I want to do it. So logistically, it's not something my nurses are used to doing because it's, it's really primarily an ICU medication that is working its way downstairs. And there's more nuance to it than just a bolus. Right. It really does take, it does need a little bit of time to actually build up to its efficacy. And so usually what I'm doing is I'm starting it, I think our set rate is like 0.7. And so I'm starting that as soon as I think that the patient might need something and maybe I'm using another um, faster acting agent to kind of bridge to full effectiveness of Presidex. But the nice thing about having the Presidex on board though is that that is a much longer acting agent too. So if I can get that up to a therapeutic level and get my patient comfortable on that, then I'm not gonna have to worry about redosing and redosing and redosing and re-coming back around to this question of am I accidentally going to over-sedate my patient and then make their respiratory status worse. Very good. So by some combination of hook or crook or fentanyl and Presidex and Zyprexa and coaching, and let's not forget those amazing respiratory therapists out there because there are some of them that quite honestly can coach those patients so gently and so kindly and they titrate them and they stand right there at bedside and you know adjust that mask pressure so it's not so much and it's funny how you may not even realize it but you'll see a certain respiratory therapist walk into the room and know you're going to have to get the presidex and you'll see another go in and you're like Done. They're fine. Mm -hmm. they'll, they'll be, it'll, it'll be okay. Because, you know, I'm not going to be like George and just hang out in the room and take care of the sick person. <laughs> there could be someone with a significant customer service issue that I need to recover, and I could do that in between the ventilations. So, no, seriously, though, I, I would stay. And so, but you've got the awesome respiratory therapist. You've got a little bit of maybe fentanyl on board. The patient is, is starting the breathing better. But you had all mentioned in some way or another nitroglycerin, as if you're fans of the drug. And so, you know, but you do hear a lot about, you know, they need Lasix, they need Lasix. But, but what we typically find with these patients, right, is that they're actually a lot of times euvolemic. It's, it's not, they don't, they, they're already on Lasix. If they could have been diuresing, you know, these typically I find later aren't the patients that I talk to and go, what happened? And they're not, they're like, well, you know, I didn't take my Lasix for five days. They're like, oh, I took my Lasix every day, and then th this happened. So, but tell me your approach to nitroglycerin, because I think it is, it is changing a lot, and the literature is changing worth it, and we're kind of in that state right now where um, there might be some folks in the, in the listening audience that have some questions about how to do it, how to implement it, how to do it safely, how to feel comfortable. So I love nitroglycerin. 
what I typically will do, this is a little bit, I'm not going to say it's voodoo because there's actually really good literature on this now, is use bolus dose nitroglycerin. But even if you are in a situation where your nurses or your pharmacist or somebody is not comfortable doing bolus dose nitroglycerin, the goal is to start the nitroglycerin high. So most of the nursing handbooks will tell you that the dosing is to start with five micrograms per minute, which that's, is... That's pretty high. <laughs> yes. Oof. Five micrograms per minute, you might as well just, right. I don't even, I don't even want to say that. That's sub-homeopathic dosing. <laughs> That's normal. We have normal five micrograms nitroglycerin in our system. Wafting the nitro over the patient. So I start my nitroglycerin very high. We're not talking about five. We're not talking about 50. We're not talking about 100, 200, 300, 400 micrograms per minute to where people are uncomfortable in the room. And I remember the first time I ever started a nitroglycerin bolus dose, or I'm sorry, a nitroglycerin infusion at 500 micrograms per minute. I literally watched my pharmacist just drop her mouth. <laughs> what are you doing? What are you actually doing? And I said, just wait, 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 wait. Got nitroglycerin going, we got non-invasive positive pressure ventilation going. Next thing you know, the blood pressure started to go down, the patient started feeling better, and then we started titrating that nitroglycerin infusion back a little bit, and then the next thing you know, the patient was on room air and was satting fine, and then the hospitalist was like, nope, you don't need to admit this person. I'm just joking. <laughs> they obviously took the patient upstairs. Some of my hospitals have actually told I know, me that, though. it's okay. happening now. I did my job too more well. More uh, frequently, that's happening now. <laughs> I think I take probably a more moderate approach to my nitro dosing. So I, I love the sublingual tablets. The second that I'm suspicious that this is scape, I'm reaching for those sublingual nitro tabs because I know that that's 400 mics right there already, right? And so I'm usually doing sublingual nitro tabs until I can get the drip. And then usually I use the patient's response to the tabs itself to kind of guide me on maybe where I need to be starting my, my drip at. And if they've had zero response whatsoever, they're still super hypertensive, I'm going high. But if they've started to have a little bit of a response already, I'm usually choosing kind of a more moderate range, 200, 250, something like that, but not starting at the beginning. I think but that that's five? the wrong move. Not five, oh, okay. not five, go big or go home. Okay. Yeah, no, I think Molly, your and my approach is very similar, which is one to two sublingual nitroglycerins. There's, there's never, an issue getting those on board. And those can be in rapid succession, like one and then two minutes later, you might be giving the second one because they take about a minute to show an effect. Mm -hmm. And that's a big bolus that we're giving them. And then, yeah, one to 300 mics per minute is the starting range. And, and some of it is comfort of everyone else in the room where I'm gonna start. Sometimes I have to start a little lower and titrate up to get everyone comfortable with that number that we're gonna to go to. Sometimes I can read the room and say, hey, I can start at 200 or 300, and, 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 and that's the appropriate dose to start with, and we can go up and down and, and finagle a little bit. But I love that one to two sublingual nitroglycerins initially. Mm -hmm. Logistically, just seems easier. It seems easier, but what I have also found is the Pixis in our recess area where we're taking care of the large majority of these patients has nitroglycerin bottle, of the tablets and nitroglycerin bottle of the liquid. And so I will frequently, and this is one thing that has gotten me a lot of people staring at me, but I absolutely love doing it because it works very well, is to give, if you can pull the bottle of the infusion out, I will give them a one to two milligram bolus IV and watch the patient literally almost never even need non-invasive positive pressure ventilation. The respiratory therapist says, hey, I'm ready to do bi 
but I'm going to clarify really quick. You said one to two milligrams. Milligrams, very, one thousand to intriguing. two thousand micrograms. And so the literature is actually very good on this now. There's actually several studies that have looked at this and actually found that the large majority of these patients who get bolus dose nitroglycerin don't need um, prolonged stays in the ICU. And the most recent study, which I believe was published in 2020, I'm sorry, 2019, they took patients who came in with SCAPE. They looked at how fast they were able to subsequently come off of non-invasive positive pressure ventilation. And what they found is that all but one was able to come off within 24 hours if they got bolus dose nitroglycerin. That one person didn't tolerate the mask, was just freaking out too much, and they ended up just putting a tube in her. <laughs> but everybody else was able to subsequently get off of non-invasive, usually half of them got done within six hours, and the other half got done within 24 hours. So it's a very rapid, fast, works very well. And so now it's become my go-to. If the nurse is like, I'm gonna grab that bottle, I'm like, no, grab that bottle. Grab that bottle of liquid, I'll pull off one to two milligrams and just hit them with a nice bolus. Again, the first time I did that, she didn't actually drop her jaw this time. She actually hit the floor. Yeah. <laughs> Single pull episode, it was like, oh my gosh, I got. Yeah. I was gonna say, I might make my pharmacist head explode, their, but I'm yeah. gonna give that a try, that's a, that's a neat idea. So, so do we think that that rapid succession tablet is close enough to that bolus of liquid nitroglycerin? I mean, is that, is, if, if, my pharmacist totally passes out and I'm unable to get the liquid nitroglycerin, can I, can I just slam it with a bunch of tablets? I don't think that it would be the wrong thing to do, but again, knowing that that tablet's gonna take a little bit more time to get into the system, but it's also gonna, it does last a little bit longer than the nitroglycerin. That's why nitroglycerin is, is, is a bowl. It has a very rapid yep. half-life. It's quick on, it's quick off. You turn the nitroglycerin off, and it's out of the system almost immediately. But with the nitroglycerin tablet, it does hang around for a little bit longer. But you know, usually within five minutes, it's out of the system. Well, we have definitely covered some very interesting things. I'm gonna throw in just a little bit more than medicine, an interesting side bit about nitroglycerin. So my, my, my girlfriend, Kim, works in cardiology. And where, where I did EMS and where she, she works, there is a large company there that manufactures rocket fuel and fireworks and the, the nitroglycerin part of TNT. So their workers work all the time around huge vats of nitroglycerin. And it's really interesting there because anyone that works there the first couple of weeks, they tell them that you're gonna have constant headaches and may feel lightheaded. And they eventually habituate to the nitroglycerin, become very tolerant of it. And for all of those patients, when they come to the emergency departments there, they start them off on like milligrams of nitroglycerin for chest pain. And it's very, the presumption was always that it was safe because they were habituated, but the research is starting to show more that, that you, you really can tolerate, tolerate that amount. And I always thought it was fascinating because our medical protocols were so different there. You know, everywhere else as a paramedic, it was, you know, one nitroglycerin tablet sublingual every like five minutes and then call medical control if you need more than three. And then like there, it was like, you know, dispense the bottle under the patient's tongue. They pour the whole um, bottle just. You know, <laughs> I mean, they were better written than that, but that was essentially the summary statement. So to, to just close it out and, and, and circle it back, it sounds like there are a couple of new ideas that are out there. So thanks to, to each of you, all of you for sharing those. I think the Presidex is an interesting 
thing we may want to explore, the higher dose nitroglycerin and what medications we actually use to help those patients. But either way, scape is a very interesting phenomenon. I think we all enjoy treating it. it. They are very rewarding patients when they make that turn and start breathing better and go from gasping for air to thanking you for saving their life. Well, congrats on making it all the way to the end of that EM Over Easy episode. Don't forget, we are the official podcast of the American College of Osteopathic Emergency Physicians. To learn more about this great organization, head on over to asoep.org today.